Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Our guest today is Dr. Philip J. Meese. He is the Director of Rheumatology Research at Providence Swedish Health and Clinical Professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. His clinical practice is based in Seattle with Seattle Rheumatology Associates, a Providence affiliate, and he earned his undergrad and medical degrees at Stanford. He then completed residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in rheumatology at University of Washington. His research interests include psoriatic arthritis, spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, systemic lupus, fibromyalgia. He is the past president and founding organizer of the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, or GRAPA, and is highly involved in the rheumatological community um, far and wide. So we are super excited today to welcome you and to talk about psoriatic arthritis and some research updates on the topic. Thank you very much, Jill. So we are going to spend the next few minutes talking. I know a lot of, there's a lot of crossover between uh, psoriatic and spondyloarthritis. Um, and then there's some differences. Can you give us an idea of psoriatic arthritis, what it is and how it differs from other forms of arthritis? Psoriatic arthritis uh, is an immunologic inflammatory condition, which occurs in about 30% of people with psoriasis. And we know that psoriasis, which is a skin condition in which patients develop these terrible itchy uh, uh, plaques all over their body uh, that are um, scaly and unsightly, occurs in about 3% of the U.S. population and to varying degrees in, in other populations around the world. And in any given psoriasis cohort, you'll find about 30% of the patients having some form of musculoskeletal inflammation that involves joints. So small joints of the fingers, wrists, knees, feet, and so forth, but also potentially the joints, ligaments, and bones of the spine. Uh, some of the uh, other characteristics include inflammation wherever tendons or ligaments insert into bone. So for example, the Achilles tendon, uh, where it inserts into the heel or the plantar fascia at the heel or around the rib cage or around the knee. Uh, and so a person can have multiple sites of inflammation and pain, which leads to physical disability and sometimes uh, deformity. It, it's a member of the spondyloarthritis family. And when I say that, what I mean is that there are certain genetic associations that are very close between psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, what is now known as axial spondyloarthritis that we used to call ankylosing spondylitis, and also other conditions that are closely genetically related. For example, there's a condition called inflammatory bowel disease 
Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, where the person can have musculoskeletal manifestations of spondyloarthritis or psoriatic arthritis. We know that uh, individuals who have something called uveitis, an inflammation of the eye, it's also closely associated. People who get an infectious stimulus and they get something called reactive arthritis to a, to a certain infection may have predominant spondyloarthritis type features. So this is all one big family. And when you add them all together, it turns out that roughly 2% of the US population, if not more, has one of these, these subsets of spondyloarthritis, wow. whereas only about 1% or less have rheumatoid arthritis. Yet when you talk to a primary physician or a patient, they've all heard of rheumatoid arthritis, but what the heck is this spondyloarthritis thing you're talking about? Yeah. It's funny you say that. I mean, we talk all the time about how many people are estimated to have spondyloarthritis, but I've never contextualized it into the percentage of the population. That's mm -hmm. It's a lot of people. It's a and, lot of people. Uh, and the other sad point is that many of these patients are undiscovered. Right. They have back pain. Well, back pain occurs in everybody. Go into a primary care physician. Sure, you've got mechanical. You, they get an x-ray. There's some degenerative changes. Oh, you've got degenerative arthritis of the spine. Not realizing that this patient that feels like the Tin Man from um, uh, Wizard in Oz uh, is, uh, is actually a person with spondylitis. And they would do so well with one of our new and improved medications that really can sometimes put these conditions in remission. Yeah. So um, I, I'm always on the bandwagon of trying to educate not only primary care docs and physiatrists and orthopedists and physical therapists, but also the large swath of the patients out there who have back pain or peripheral joint inflammation or heel pain or psoriasis, really think about the possibility that your musculoskeletal inflammation is due to an immunologic uh, condition that can be readily uh, treated in many cases. Yeah, we talk a lot about uh, here and just in the SAA community uh, about if we can get to a point where inflammatory back pain isn't just discussed in the rheumatological community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we can get yes. people to understand that it's, this is a huge contributor to, to disability in the United States and beyond, and that it actually is, there's differences and a lot of specialties don't even look at it differently. That's so, absolutely yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. So maybe we, maybe we can start a new, um, I don't know, is that a campaign or a business <laughs> to get right. people to learn it? Uh, so you talked a little bit about, right? So psoriatic arthritis falls under this umbrella of spondylitis and uh, or spondyloarthritis. And I often, when I meet someone with anything under that umbrella, I always call them my cousin uh, because I think they're very similar. But what are the most common symptoms like of psoriatic uh, compared, maybe in comparison to some of the other 
uh, some of the other, my brain just broke. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, so uh, for this audience, probably one of the most important comparisons is going to be with, uh, in comparison with individuals with what we used to call ankylosing spondylitis. Notice that I keep using the phrase used to call. Right. Uh, it, it turns out that the, the, the phrase ankylosing spondylitis, which was coined back in the 19, late 70s and 80s, uh, really uh, brings forth the image of a young male, B20, HLA B27 positive, who already by the time they're uh, in their late 20s or early 30s, have evidence of these bridging calcium deposits uh, that unite the vertebra and cause this ankylosis or bamboo spine type of change uh, that is the most severe form of ankylosing spondylitis, along with uh, ankylosis, that is gradual fusion of the, of the sacroiliac joints at the base of the spine. So that's the old concept. Then as we moved along, uh, into the 90s and 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 more recently, with the advent of MRI technology, we began to see that there were a whole bunch of people out there, especially women, who had evidence of inflammation in the spine or sacroiliac joints, but did uh, but did not have the ankylosing changes, the the changes that you can see on X-ray. And all of a sudden, we discovered as many people, if not more, who had this broader condition that then got the name changed to axial, meaning just spine and not inferring ankylosing, to uh, and spondyloarthritis. So that's the new term. And we get to the new ICD code uh, in a few, few years where we, we numerically code the different diseases of the patients we're seeing that the old term ankylosing spondylitis will go away and we'll just have the newer term, uh, which is now uh, including all these people that show up with inflammation on MRI scan or have a positive HLA-B27 and other characteristic features like uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease. So if you then move over to psoriatic arthritis, what are the key differences? Well, for one, we, we from the very beginning, we know that it's equigender. It equally involves males and females, unlike the old concept of ankylosing spondylitis, which was predominantly male, and the rheumatoid arthritis, which is predominantly uh, female. The other features are that there's a lot of what we call peripheral disease. So lots of inflammation and pain and stiffness of the finger joints, the wrist joints, the uh, the feet and ankles and knees, for example. They can also have spine involvement. For example, on average, about 50% of patients with psoriatic arthritis will have some degree of spine involvement, but it may be very different than the classic person with axial spinal arthritis. For example, it may start in the cervical spine rather than down in the lower part of the spine. They may not have sacroiliac joint involvement at all. Um, and uh, oftentimes when you ask the patient about pain and stiffness, it has a different, a slightly different flavor, although can be as severe 
as the people with axial spondyloarthritis. And it can occur later in life uh, and often gets confused with degenerative arthritis when it starts to occur later in life. And we're starting to learn that there may be differences in treatment response. So some of the treatments that work in the spine condition of, of, of psoriatic arthritis may not work as well in axial spinal arthritis or vice versa. So it's really getting important to really understand the immunobiology of the patients we're treating and having biomarkers and so forth that are going to be able to teach us instead of just throwing a dart against the, uh, the dartboard about what therapies to use, really picking the best treatment for the patient that's in front of us. That's, and it, I don't know if everybody listening realizes there's so much good work that has gone on in this area in the last really 20, 30 mm -hmm. years. And while there is way more to do, right? Because we have all these undiagnosed, underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, and you know, there's still work to do, but let's acknowledge that we have some good things going on and there's room for improvement. Uh, but what are the, the most recent developments like around psoriatic that we're learning? I know there, I just came from the unmet needs for spinal arthritis and it was fascinating, like just to be a fly on the wall, even <laughs> not a researcher. Uh, but what's happening in psoriatic specifically? Well, there's several things. So first of all, I should, uh, although this gives away my age, when I first was a fellow in rheumatology back in my training days, this audience might be a little horrified to know that the main treatment that we use for treating rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis were weekly injections of gold. I've heard that. This Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So then uh, right around that time when I was a fellow, one of my mentors at the University of Washington was a pioneer in the use of methotrexate, which started in dermatology with the use of low-dose methotrexate for treatment of psoriasis. And then we borrowed it to treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. Not so effective, unfortunately, in axial spondyl arthritis. And so that, uh, for a couple of decades, methotrexate ended up being the mainstay of therapy. Then in the, uh, the very end of the 1990s, uh, I, I had the opportunity uh, living in Seattle uh, to work with a company called Immunex that was developing a drug known as a Tannercept. Uh, the trade name is Inbrel for that medication. And so um, because I was seeing a lot of patients with psoriatic arthritis, I, I asked Immunex, could I have some of this drug and do an independent investigator study uh, of patients with psoriatic arthritis? So we um, enrolled about 60 patients over the course of four months, uh, treating half with the Tannercept and half without. And lo and behold, it was quite effective uh, with reduction of uh, joint swelling, uh, joint pain, uh, improvement of fatigue, uh, really significant improvement of physical function, um, ability to work. And that was the first trial of a effective uh, biologic therapy for 
the disease. And it showed that it also worked well in the skin and getting really diminishing the skin plaques. So that started off a whole sequence of trials with first various anti-TNF medications like uh, adalimumab uh, and infliximab and so forth. And then uh, that went on for about a decade of using those medications primarily. And then we started to see a bevy of other uh, treatments uh, being tested based largely on a better understanding of the immunobiology of the uh, how the skin lesions occur and how the joint inflammation occurs. Once we started to piece together that certain molecules like interleukin-17 or certain T lymphocytes or the role of interleukin-23, all of these molecules that were involved in inflammation, we could really see that they were uh, causing uh, inflammation and tissue destruction in these patients. And once you could develop uh, in drugs that inhibited the function of these uh, various targets, then we started to see great effects with interleukin-17 inhibitors, interleukin-12-23 inhibitors, interleukin-23 inhibitors, uh, Janus kinase inhibitors, and the list goes on. There's several uh, promising new treatments that are in the pipeline now. So we're uh, in a stage of having a uh, just a, a bounty of effective medicines. And for the first time, unlike the days when we were only using methotrexate and especially only when we were using gold therapy, we're now able to get people into a state of what we call low disease activity or remission. And one of the uh, roles of the GRAPA group over the years has been not only to unite rheumatologists and dermatologists around the world in an interest in figuring out uh, about the disease and how best to treat it, but also how to measure it. So we can now measure uh, in the clinic uh, the severity of disease and we can treat to a target of keeping the patient in low disease activity or remission, which we know is critical for preventing downwind destructive changes of the joints and also hopefully ameliorating some of the other comorbidity problems that patients have like cardiovascular disease yeah. that often accompany states of inflammation. That's fascinating. And when I think of this like targeted, right, and you're talking about the comorbidities and how we're changing the way we treat things. I think of this, it's like this multidimensional, right? Like yes. each person is this multidimensional uh, human. And I just think of all the combinations you guys must have to go through in your heads. But yes. I will say at least when, right, when, when you were a resident, they, it was mostly that women didn't have it these diseases, right? Wasn't... Did, didn't have axial spondyloarthritis, but we right, knew okay. that women had psoriatic arthritis. Okay. Right? Gotcha. Um, I met a doctor at the beginning of COVID who looked at me sideways when I said I had spondyloarthritis. And she said, well, what do you have? And I said, ankylosing spondylitis. And she said, that's not possible. Women don't get it. <laughs> we'll yeah. just leave that one there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 
lots of good promising things happening. Uh, how about to back up for a second? I am going to, before we end this, I am going to go back and ask you why you became a rheumatologist. We're going to end on that. Um, but I want to go up one level for the patient and what are environmental or genetic factors that could contribute to the development or um, exacerbate the condition? So one that I'll point to uh, that is a common issue is obesity. We know that individuals with psoriasis are genetically predisposed, unfortunately, to becoming obese and having the cardiovascular triad of hypertension, hyperlipidemia or, or high cholesterol, uh, along with uh, uh, obesity. Uh, and these all contribute to the cardiovascular comorbidities that uh, lead to potentially early heart attack and stroke unless the inflammation is adequately controlled. But it turns out that, uh, uh, again, coming back to obesity, that uh, even if a patient works as hard as they can, uh, diet-wise, exercise-wise, to con control their weight, it's tough. And this is partly, again, driven um, uh, genetically. And we know that uh, if a person is obese, they have a slightly higher risk of developing psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And we also know that if you adequately reduce weight with various kinds of dietary approaches or ex and exercise approaches, that the disease itself will diminish in intensity. And when you then use a medicine, there's a bit was an, a famous study where uh, the question was asked if a patient, uh, one group didn't have a dietary control, the other, this was all done in Naples, Italy, where pe putting people on a on a very uh, low calorie diet, which is a crime in Italy, I have to admit, uh, is uh, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that that group, when given a TNF inhibitor, was much more likely to be able to get to the target of minimal disease activity, mm -hmm. uh, which is a target. Uh, it's a complex uh, set of characteristics that we measure in the clinic, and then. Uh, use as a target for therapy. Uh, so just knowing that by reducing weight can ameliorate disease is, I think, uh, very important because oftentimes I'm asked, Doc, what can I do? I know you're giving me this medicine and I really appreciate its effect, but what can I do? And, uh, and one is to reduce weight and the other is to exercise uh, within reason. You know, obviously, if you've got a bad, really bad knee, don't go doing marathons, but but be, be doing exercise regularly is very helpful uh, for your disease state. There are also a number of um, naturopathic remedies that I think are of interest. Unfortunately, in the naturopathic world, they don't really subject their dietary or nutraceutical um, uh, treatments to good placebo-controlled trials, but I hear plenty of anecdotal evidence of various uh, naturopathic approaches being potentially helpful. Uh, and then uh, lastly, I'm going to just say mental health. 
the, use the phrase mental health. It turns out that depression is, and to a lesser extent, anxiety are major comorbidities for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Just imagine the double whammy of having the embarrassing skin disease and, and painful uh, function limiting musculoskeletal disease. Depression sets in. Uh, up to a third of patients can experience this. And, and we know that when you're depressed, there can be more fibromyalgia, more of this central sensitization phenomenon. Uh, there can be, and just having an autoimmune disease can give you more fibromyalgia, the inflammation of it. And whenever those, those comorbidities are present, depression, anxiety, fibromyalgia, they, uh, the patient tends to have worse pain, more fatigue, more sleep disturbance, and less ability to do their work and function with their family. And so those are things that I would call, if you, in a way they're environmental in that they can be modifiable and move to a, a state of better emotional health uh, to be with your family, to be with your friends. Uh, that's really important for disease management. Yeah, we've done a number of episodes on uh, mental health, pain management. Uh, we just did uh, another one with Afton Hassett from University of mm. Michigan. Yes, She's I know Afton. Yeah. Have you seen her new book? It's amazing. I, I know of the book. It, yes. it should be. I I did I did the protocol, so uh, it was great. And I think it's mental health hit me sort of like square in the head with this disease. And I think it does a lot of people because if I'm not mistaken, right, we, we also like what goes on in our brain is dictating some of the things we feel in our body. And some of it is neurotransmitter related, which if we're predisposed to maybe, and I don't know that this is a truth, but I do remember reading somewhere that sometimes people with ankylosing spondylitis at the time produce less serotonin or dopamine. I think there are, there are things that we have to remove the stigma around the mental health piece because it's yes. so important. Yeah. And I, uh, at the end of the day, if, if we don't get the dishes done, but we laugh, that's probably good enough. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Uh, you can tell about my mantra. Uh, but yeah, I think the mental health piece is huge for people. Um, as is, it's a, it can be a struggle. All of this goes back to that multidimensionality, right? Of there's so many things that we're trying to kind of firefight within uh, in an immunological disease. Mm -hmm. So I love hearing that. The, I think well, I don't love hearing that mental health is a struggle for many patients, but I. Uh, do you think uh, in terms of what's coming next in psoriatic arthritis, any anything you want to give us a sneak peek on or you think is a promising, a promising new development in research? Well, I go back to some of the pharmaceutical approaches that we were discussing earlier. And yes, there are a number of new developments. For example, uh, just last week, uh, we had a major new uh, approval by the 
uh, uh, FDA uh, of a medicine uh, that is an interleukin 17A and interleukin 17F inhibitor. So a dual mechanism, uh, unlike the currently used IL-17A inhibitors uh, A alone. So that uh, was approved for psoriasis and we are anticipating next year its approval uh, in both psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyl arthritis, both the radiographic form of axial spondyl arthritis, i.e. ankylosing spondylitis, as well as the so-called non-radiographic axial spondyl, the ones that are MRI positive or B27 positive. So major new uh, example of uh, an approval. We have some really fascinating drugs in the pipeline along that same line of IL interleukin 17A or A and F inhibition, and they're called nanobodies. So instead of being the big, huge proteins that we're currently injecting, like uh, the TN, the ones that everybody is, that might be on biologic therapy that's listening are using, these are tiny little molecular fragments. So uh, uh, like, for example, when you're injecting adalimumab uh, or Humira, uh, or you're injecting Cosentex or Tuls, they're about 150 kilodaltons in size. These new nanobodies can be as small as 14 or 15 kilodaltons. And uh, that's interesting because then it may allow them to get into uh, being small in size and binding to albumin as well as IL-17. They may get into some of these difficult to treat places like some of the aspects of the spine or the right where the Achilles tendon is inserting into bone. Uh, and they're showing, they're being uh, actually data from their uh, data is being presented uh, in a little over a week at the ACR meeting and some really exciting um, and very good quality results with each of the, the mechanisms I've just described. Bimakizumab, the recently approved drug for psoriasis, and then these new antibodies, which have more and more unpronounceable names like yeah. Izocabep and Sonalicumab. Um, in, in the morning, I get up like Demosthenes and stand in front of the mirror and just sort of say these over and over again so I can they can roll off my tongue. And then there's, <laughs> uh, then, then there's a whole other uh, group of, of drugs coming along that are called TIC2 inhibitors. Um, one that's been recently approved for psoriasis called Ducravacitinib, uh, and it will be again approved uh, sometime next year for, we think, or, or the year after for psoriatic arthritis. And then there are a whole bevy of TIC2 inhibitors uh, that are in the pipeline. We've got MK2 inhibitors, and some of these are medicines that are uh, taken uh, by in a pill form, so they don't all have to be injected, uh, which is going to be a convenience to some people. We've recently had an intravenous form of the uh, of the interleukin-17 drug Cosentix or secukinumab approved by the FDA, which now will allow patients of Medicare age to get that drug at lower cost or no cost. So uh, what can I say? This, this is just a bevy of new drugs coming along. Uh, either 
fortunately for psoriatic arthritis, unfortunately for axial spinal arthritis, not all of these drugs are proving to be um, uh, efficacious in both conditions. We, right. seem, we seem to have a few more that are good for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, and, and fortunately, most of these new medicines are a safer than some of the older biologics. And number one and number two, uh, they're, they generally are able to cover all of the areas we want, want them to cover. Skin, joints, in theses, spine. So that's, that's good and important for patients. I love it. If someone could get rid of the uh, Achilles tendon pain, that would be like a, amazing. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, two questions left to go. One is, I'm not going to let you off the hook on your journey, but uh, the first is how can uh, providers work with patients uh, to create personalized treatments plan treatment plans and what can patients do to participate in that for a better outcome? So several ways of responding to that. One is that we still, I think, have a ways to go to get to this to the place that many of the cancer uh, doctors are, which is being able to really carefully immunophenotype the understand the immunologic signature of the patient in front of them to then pick which drug or combination of drugs is going to best fit that immunophenotype. We're not quite there yet with psoriatic arthritis and axial spinal arthritis, but we're getting there. Multiple laboratories are working on identifying these molecular biomarkers to better pinpoint which drugs are going to be best and safest for the person in front of us. That, so that's true personalized medicine. And we're, we're going in that direction. And did that all sort of like in rheumatology and in cancer patients, did that all sort of, was it born out of biologics becoming developed? And I know like in the cancer side, like Keytruda, Keytruda changed cancer, yeah. right? Is it sort of one driving the other? So that's a great question because what it's you're getting at is that sometimes we try a therapy and by seeing the response, we then look back and say, oh, this must be an important mechanism, immunologic or biologic mechanism. And so it's a two-way street. We're, we're learning things in the laboratory with tissues and rats and so forth, but we're also uh, learning backwards from seeing the responses to treatment of, with these very targeted therapies. So yes, this is the answer and, and we will get there. But if we get into a more uh, prosaic place where we're asking the question, how can we better take care of the individual patient in front of us? There, there are a couple of things I wanna mention. One is this whole importance of figuring out all of the domains that are active in the patient, spine, in theses, joints, skin, nails. And um, I liken it to an orchestra where at any given moment, 
the orchestra may, all of the sections may be playing fortissimo. And so you want to hit it with a, you know, a big gun that's going to suppress all of make bring everybody into a, um, into a quieter place, uh, uh, pianissimo, hopefully. Uh, and, uh, but there might be times when, for example, the violins and the cellos, they're, they're, but, the, but the piccolo has a little solo and that's that person's right Achilles tendon. And so it's identifying that particular piece, even though generally they're uh, doing well that we, we need to get better at and be able to attend even to that single piccolo player doing, uh, doing his or her uh, piece. And so it takes a little longer in the clinic visit, but it, in, in a, it really may, patients really appreciate it when they sense that you're really comprehensively asking them about all these different uh, potential tissue domains that are, that are inflamed, but also that they're being cared for holistically. And I think that builds trust uh, and since these are long-term relationships we have with people, um, uh, this, this is important for relationship building. The other key piece there for this individual patient is think about the village of people that are involved in helping take care of that patient. Let's say they have inflammatory bowel disease, then you have to have the gastroenterologist in your cell phone contacts list because it might, might be that the, the gastroenterologist wants to use a specific drug for the patient's uh, small or large intestine inflammation, whereas we may want to use and benefit more from another drug that's better for their musculoskeletal uh, dimension. And so working together is very important. Uh, and an example of that is a current uh, trial uh, in which um, we're putting together a drug that's an interleukin-23 inhibitor along with the TNF inhibitor, uh, which are commonly used by gastroenterologists and rheumatologists to control either ulcerative colitis on the one hand or uh, psoriatic arthritis on the other, a fascinating group of uh, trials coming out of Janssen uh, known as the Vega trial and the affinity trials. So putting together combinations. Uh, we work with the ophthalmologist for the uveitis. We work with the psychologist because of depression. And in our within our clinic, um, the, uh, I work with three advanced practice practitioners, two nurse practitioners and a physician's assistant. So we're a quartet, which really allows us to know the patient well when I'm doing things like having this interview there in the clinic, seeing the patients. And, the, um, and so there, it's more around the clock care. And they get, the patient gets, to, let's say it's a young 38 year old woman. She gets to interact with a, a female nurse practitioner that's her age and talk about some of the things that they may talk about. And then this old guy comes in the room and and I talk about clinical trials and data and so on and so forth. And so they feel like they're getting the best of both worlds, something more intimate and something yeah. more, if you will, cerebral. And so 
Um, what I'm getting at is how much it takes a village to yeah. really effectively care for some of these complicated patients. I love that description. Uh, I was, I wouldn't underestimate your ability to connect with people either. <laughs> if you're calling yourself the old guy with the data. Um, so, okay. So I'm going to land on this one and then we're going to wrap it up. But uh, I could talk about this all day with you. Uh, what made you choose rheumatology? That's a great question. So I think what I'll do is I'll dial back to when I was a um, in medical school. I was at Stanford at the time. And uh, for whatever reason, I was emotionally and psychologically uh, and intellectually really drawn initially to cancer medicine. And I was, uh, you know, of course, it just sort of engages your whole being, your, your intellectual being, but also your heart when you're taking care of a dying, a patient who's dying in front of you. Uh, and one of, and I had a very inspirational uh, uh, mentor, a physician at Stanford that was uh, encouraging me in that arena. But during that, my sub-internship there, uh, I had the experience of admitting a young male with testicular cancer toward the beginning of my rotation, and toward the end of my rotation, he died. And I remember just being torn apart emotionally by this. And so when I started getting more exposed to uh, rheumatologists at the University of Washington, there were some very inspirational uh, faculty, one named Bruce Gilliland, who was just a wonderful human, as well as being very smart and one of the editors of our major textbook of, of medicine, contributing the rheumatology section of that textbook. And then I also had some... Um, uh, immunology scientists that I worked with. And I worked with a, uh, in, in helping, oh, I won't get into the details, but a, a very complex patient. I was involved in a cure of this particular patient's uh, immunologic condition. And I began to realize that the rheumatology involved the same interesting issues around immunologic science manipulating uh, the patient's immunologic um, fabric uh, and trying to improve their disease, but patients lived and they lived long-term. And I follow patients in my clinic that I've seen for 30 years. Wow. Just Im imagine growing up with someone from when I was younger in my 30s and they were in their 30s and now we're both in our current ages it's like growing up with a family member oh, over yeah. time and so um only a family member you get along with as opposed to someone you don't get along with and so the uh, uh it, i i it's it's just it's even i think even better in some ways than a family practice situation where uh, there's all this transition in and out, and uh, we've we've these long-term relationships and and friendships with with patients really makes it for me. Uh, it's what it's what ma makes it fun to get up in the morning and and go to work and see 
the uh, all day long see patients that I've known over time, as well as people that are brand new, struggling with these emotional yeah. as well as physical issues, and and helping them move through this trying time and getting to now that we have all these remarkable therapies that can get people into remission or low disease activity, seeing that give them get there and how appreciative they are. I what, What's better than that? Yeah. I, I mean, you're, uh, I fully intend on celebrating my hundredth birthday with my rheumatologist. Uh, and she's somebody who I like, I, I often say she saved my life. Uh, and yeah, and it's great. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, for that. And for your lifetime of work that you've done in a third of a lifetime so far, uh, for this community, it, it is your contribution. I is a little bit beyond comprehension. Um, when I think about grappa and all those things. So thank you for all the work you do and, uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jill. I, it was a pleasure. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.